0: I mean, we're doing like a 200 kilo cocaine negotiations for a month, yeah, yeah. for for one deal. Uh, Airplanes delivering a thousand pounds of DC Bud and that sort of stuff. Some guns, uh, invariably there's some uh, human trafficking aspects that would pop up in the cases. So I had those would show up.
1: to Our point, Forensics, Unallocated Space. This is a live podcast, uh, learning about digital forensics experts and ex- oh my God. <laughs> See, this is why I can't wing it's it. It's always
2: a two take effort here, 100% of the time.
1: 100%. Of it. I was like, you know what? Maybe it won't be this time because I'm, I'm just winging it, but apparently I can't do that either. All right, clap it in again. <laughs> Welcome to on Unallocated Space. A monthly podcast where we sit down with digital forensic experts and talk about digital forensic solutions and challenges, as well as their expertise in the field and how they got started. My name is Amy Moles. I'm the CEO and co founder of ArcPoint Forensics, and I'm joined by my co host, Jared Rundenberg.
2: Hey, thanks, Amy. So today I'm really excited to introduce Brett Shavers. Brett started out in the Marines, where he spent four years in the military, after which he went into law enforcement and spent his time in a variety of roles from street patrol um, to SWAT, uh, following which he spent a significant amount of time uh, working narcotics assignments in an extensive undercover role. After working with law, after working in law enforcement, Brett made a career shift into digital forensics where he became a leading industry expert, authoring a series of forensics books to include Hiding Behind the Keyboard, Uncovering Covert Communication Methods with Forensic Analysis in 2016, Ultimate Digital Forensic and Incident Response Cheats, geolocation forensics um, in 2019, as well as a new book uh, about X-Ways that he'll be releasing here shortly. Um, So, I just wanted to say, Brett, welcome to the podcast, and could you tell us a little bit more about the the new book that's coming up?
0: Sure, thanks for uh, having me. Um, The new book is the second edition of X-Ways Forensics Practitioner's Guide, we are editing the last chapter, actually, this this week, so it will be in print in a few weeks. so that's the, the next book coming out and i have another second edition coming out on uh, placing suspect behind the keyboard probably next year and then actually there's a uh, another another book that mark spencer and i are working on that probably come out the end of next year and it's a completely unique forensic book it's um it's like a, like a tom clancy forensic Documentary type of uh, book. That's going to be pretty uh, amazing. So uh, okay. more details it, come out with that later. Yeah, is this a, a fiction book? Nope, it's a it's a real case real life case study book on some amazing things um, evidence planning People dying corruption a whole bunch of stuff. It's a pretty good oh, okay. uh, case study book So it should be pretty good uh, a pretty oh. good read for you know for a for a uh, real-life story with forensics so.
2: Yeah, that will be interesting. So um, just kind of pulling from the web page just to kind of encompass some of how it just how interesting it could be um, I wanted to highlight real quick some of the things that you had on there um, Which is cool. So actually this one I, I just did I just got scuba certified uh, a month or two ago and went and did a, a swim with sharks But um, you've done the swim with sharks uh, You've solved murders dined with some crime bosses uh, taught uh, obviously at world-class universities uh, been shot at stabbed and beaten which will be interesting to get into um obviously you're on the swat team bought sold seized a ton of drugs earned the ega and carried the m60 hunted wild boars and apparently was chased by wild boars as well i guess they return the favor yeah. when they get yeah. a chance um <laughs> drove really fast chasing violent felons i'm curious just how fast that was um <laughs> a few in fewer planes than you took off in uh, which has to be an interesting story um operated internationally as an undercover officer um, climbed mountains did a bunch of traveling um, and then, obviously, served in uh, the military, um, receiving a bunch of accolades for that. So, wow. Yeah, that the, I'm sure the stories that you have that will go into that book and the case studies will just be uh, phenomenal, super interesting.
0: Well, half of that, like I think I even put on that webpage. Half of it sounds more exciting than it was, you know. And the and the really exciting stuff may not <laughs> may not look that exciting. So everything's more glamorous looking on the end, you know, from now. Yeah, well, we
2: like to re- remember things in the highlights. And if, you know, yeah. some of the things may or may not be highlights, but certainly memorable. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: how do you even get started on writing a book? Like, what is your process?
0: Um, well, the process is, um, suffering and trying to squeeze in the time. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the process. And I've, I've asked people, how do you, how do you do it? You know, some people, you know, 11 books, 12 books. And I, you know, it feels like they do it in two or three years, and I wonder how, and the same answer is just suffering. You gotta, you have to do it, you have to make time to do it, and it's tough. I mean, it, there's many days that I don't wanna do it at all, and uh, especially technical books, you have to have it. Actually, you know what, if, if I could write a fiction book, that might be a lot easier, because it can just be fantasy. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you can't fact check it, but with that technical book, it's a little bit difficult, because uh, there's always a, um Oh, you were wrong here, and so you don't want to be wrong, and things change. So, yeah, it's it's tough. There's no process other than suffering. It's a,
1: so, if there's something that was wrong or something that's like outdated, do you have a process of do you upload that in the comment section, or how do you update it on the fly without the reprinting the whole line?
0: It's a good good question. Um, so, on the first book, that placing in a subject on a keyboard book, I kind of wrote it broad, so it would apply for you know more than one year. Uh, but many technical books, like you just said, they are out of date in in a year because things change. Operating systems change. So you can't really update the book with a publisher unless you do another edition. And you know they usually don't want to do another edition for a couple of years. So then you have an outdated book on the shelf, even though you know you have the, uh, it, it'd be a blog post, I guess, would be the best way to, you know, I wrote this back in three years ago. But now things have changed. Here's a blog post. Uh, but when people buy the book, it's still going to be outdated. That's, you know, unless you're self-publishing, and then you can upload a new version, so people can buy the new version. But that's the thing with books, blogs—you can change it and fix it. Books, yeah, yeah. Not, that's not so much.
1: Yeah, I would imagine it was yeah. like more difficult and time-consuming. So,
2: but hey, the updates, new books, new materials, turn over the 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 customer base. I guess not turn over the customer base, but repeat customers, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, but, that's what you want, you know. not turn <laughs> no, I mean, over. Let's say the X-rays book, that the first one that came out, and I just added up the number of changes in the in a software, this one X-ray software, and the number of changes between the first book and this book is like 1,200 updates, uh, features added, bugs removed, that sort of thing. So 1,200 updates means a new book. So updating technical books is, um, it's not like well, I'll just update a, the new the new button that showed up. It's uh, it's way more than that. So it it's it's suffering. I guess that's uh, I'll go back to that. The yeah, of it, is
2: the last week of editing and putting it together kind of like um, really the last month of editing and putting it
0: together? Yes, yeah, and it's um, holding my breath that actually doesn't have another update. Oh yeah, I just just uh, just, uh, just let's keep it the same. So, right so you, you have, have no control over, over
1: that. <laughs>
0: no, no.
1: Oh, man.
2: What um, uh, what caused you to, like, what inspired you to write
0: a book in the first place? Um, well, for that particular first book, it goes back to my NARC days. And just as uh, whoever's worked NARCs as a uh, filing detective means a patrol makes an arrest, they send the case to a det- assigned detective, and you have to write an affidavit saying, yeah, this would happen after file charges. So I get these cases where a patrol would pull over a car. There'd be two or, two or more people in the car, and there'd be some drugs, some crack in the center console. So who do you charge in that car? Um, do you charge a driver, or say it's a third party owner of the car? So who do you, do you charge the owner? I mean, who do you charge? So I asked my partner that day. I said, "Well, who do we charge?" And uh, his answer was, "I don't know, <laughs> because you have all these people." So I started to figure. You know, I started to learn. Well, we got to pin, attribute crimes. To a person, so that's um, taking notes on well, this this worked in the case for drugs, this worked in the case for you know, murder whatever it is, attribution mm-hmm. basically. So coming into dire- digital forensics, this was the same thing when I, I started um, the first forensic lab in my agency. So and I had no senior guy to go to, to ask questions. Yeah, this is kind of way back in the day of uh, not that many people around to ask anyway. So it was attribution was the big thing. So a lot of note taking, a lot of figuring how to, how to you know pen. You know the crime on the person, not any person. So, a lot of notes led to that book. Placing a setback on the keyboard, basically. Um, that book was written for me, so so I can, you know, kind of remind myself of well, here's how I want to attribute a crime to a person. Uh, it's not just one piece of evidence; it's a lot of pieces of evidence. Yeah, yeah, look everywhere really, and totality of the circumstances, not just one piece. So it all stemmed from that. Who do you charge when you have a lot of people and and nothing directly tied to it? So, that's where the book came from. My notes. For me so
1: is that true with your blocks too and as well as all the other resources that you provide to the the DFIR community
0: yeah it's all uh based on mistakes you know (laughs) i that i've made i uh, I don't think
1: a lot of people would admit that
0: (laughs) you know it's um yeah i have to admit you i admit my mistakes um i admit when i'm right and when i'm wrong you know i was right i was wrong and I think that's the only way to get better, anyway. And like I said, um, when I started out, I should when I started out in narcotics, I had uh, one of the worst partners you can imagine, other than uh, Denzel Washington and Training Day. I guess that'd be the worst could partner. But I had a pretty could have been worse, but I had a, a pretty bad one. And um, I mean, without any training, I'm doing undercover work and I'm being put in really bad situations. It was uh, just ridiculous. Actually, I thought the job sucked, that my first couple of months I go, this job sucks. <laughs> God, I don't want to do this anymore, it's too dangerous. And then later I learned, well, I was doing it wrong. I was being, wasn't being, was even being taught, I was being shown wrong, I was put in wrong, bad situations. So eventually I was learning. And I, and so then I eventually got my own, I became senior, that guy got, basically got fired. And uh, so I made sure my partner came into a better world of, this is how we do it safely, this is how you do a, a good case, this is how we avoid problems. And the same thing with forensics when i came in there was nobody to ask um i would call a neighboring agency my, how about my first um forensic case i got some i got bare bones training i can image a drive and uh, i can look at some things right so uh a detective says hey we got this case you're this gonna be the first forensic case for my agency so oh, this is outstanding i can't wait to go and serve the search warrant in, the, in a house single family house and there were uh, 26 computers a server in the garage, no monitors, wires dangling from the ceiling, hard drives everywhere. This is during the CD-ROM days, so you know hundreds of CD-ROMs. And and I walk in, and you know the server in the garage is running. And uh, Alex, there's no monitor or anything, right? So I don't I don't know anything about networks at that time. And uh, I walk out, so I call a neighboring agency and, and I say, hey, uh, a, a guy with much more experience than me, and to come and help me. So he shows up, he walks to the house, and uh, I said, well, what do you think? And he goes up. All I can tell you is I'm glad it's not my case, and it went well. Great. So, so what else? My learning curve was was uh, okay. Now I got to learn a lot, and not having somebody to to show me the way is really hard. Um, And you make a lot of mistakes, and and I did. So that's why I take notes, and I want to help other people. You're going to go through some pain no matter what. So, but we can lessen that pain. Um, I, I hate seeing somebody suffer when you can just easily tell them, "Hey, don't do that. Just do it this way." Um, so that's my notes, books, helping, um, putting information out there. And if you have to share, why not it's free anyway to, to help somebody.
1: Yeah. I think that's an awesome example of just like the power of asking for help. When you know that you're in over your head, a lot of people are intimidated by that process, but I couldn't imagine just, how that just, case would have turned out if you didn't ask for help.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that was another note learning experience too, was, um, I spent a lot of time on that case and of course there was all the images you can imagine in that type. it was a uh, rape of a child case and a lot a lot of bad things in that case mm-hmm. i mean bad crimes that came up but the guy confessed he or he you know in an interrogation interview he said yeah i he raped his uh, granddaughter and some other things and some more victims were found through the pictures in the computers Of kids in that neighborhood. So that that was a a, um an eye-opener of wow, we actually uncovered some more victims through this person. And one of the commanders at the time, he asked me how many hours did I spend on that? I I said, you know, 80 hours or so. I mean, it's not a lot of time on it. And he said it was all wasted. He goes, uh, we I don't know why we're doing this. We wasted that much time. You could have been doing something else. He already confessed. And so I had to explain to him, I said, Well, let me lay out the crimes. That we have found <laughs> so yeah. he may have confessed to that rate but he's sharing this stuff across the world he's downloading it he's creating it he's he's other victims and then the light bulb, bulb went off in his head of oh my gosh and i say that that's like a 10 lifetimes in prison i mean if justice were fully served but that's one of the th- the learning curves that people go through with um when you're learning forensics um in, in investigations it's important you know it's, it's one thing to find the evidence but it's another thing to have a good case so you have to have both, and you have to have the support, obviously, of uh, whoever you're doing cases for, prosecutor, bosses, or whoever. So a lot of learning experiences that I try to write to uh, help people. Uh, you want to get funding? You got to you got to sell it. Um, you know, sell it by you know it's going to solve problems. It's going to you know help people that sort of thing. So yeah, that's, the, uh, impact on that, yeah. the impact my notes. Yeah, impact. Yeah.
2: So I'm I'm curious. Back to that specific case with all of those drives. How did you process that data? Like.
0: Another learning experience was one um, we didn't have enough write blockers, so uh, of course. Okay, how do I say this? how do I say this? Um, so I'm showing off my limited knowledge to the case detective. we got all these drives imaging, and uh, I said, hey, "You know, we don't have enough write blockers, but I can boot to a forensic disk, a CD, and I can image it that way." So I unplugged the the hard um, drive, set the BIOS. To boot to a cd test it it works plug in the hard drive got the cd in there and i boot to the to the evidence computer just bypassed the cd and uh, it booted up the the guy's computer so i'm standing there going
1: well <laughs> no so,
0: so i said yeah that's that's why we use write blockers and uh it didn't work this time <laughs> so, so there was a lot of um a lot of imaging a lot of triaging at that time that i didn't know was really triaging at um yeah this, yeah this drive's got stuff on it this drive doesn't at least The pictures and uh and had more than enough really to uh it it just took a lot of time yeah
2: were you you doing um file carving as part of that process or was it was that too long and you just had to like go and and just see what was there as quick as you could um it was both
0: the triage was not file carving and um so it it basically does this have what we're looking for on it and if it did we put it to the side and just triage it that way and then file carve on And really deep dive on the ones that had low-hanging fruit that gotcha yeah they're not deleted there's and there are of course more that were deleted and shared and that sort of thing so we had more than enough just off of that and i'm sure the other ones had stuff on it but uh, just just so many for one person to do i mean it's just yeah it was was a lot
1: (laughs) i would imagine yeah so the um timeline on that whole case that you were working how long did it take from start to finish of that person being prosecuted and sentenced
0: you know, um, I was actually assigned the NART at that time because I was beginning. So uh, I would just come in, I would do the forensics and I would say, here's what I got. And I'd run out and do drugs, sell drugs, buy drugs, that's right. <laughs> 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 yeah, so, it was a stressful day. I understand. Yeah. yeah. So as far as how the case went, never, that one never went to trial that I'm aware of. Well, I never testified in it. So but I know that he went to jail, you know, conviction. So I'm not sure how that turned out, plea or, or trial. But that's how that initially worked. Was trying to to convince the agency. Now they have full time frantic people to do this in that department. Where then it was kind of a part time, part time gig that I was trying to squeeze in there. Um, mm-hmm. So it worked out, you know, eventually in the end. But it was a lot of uh, a lot of hours of uh, trying to get that to work.
1: Man, too bad you didn't have a <laughs> You're gonna compress there, you that know. Down. <laughs> 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 waiting
0: for it. <laughs> This, this is in the days of uh, Drive Spy, Norton Disk Edit.
1: Um, oh, yes.
0: Er, WinHex, I mean, in case version three, you know, which was uh, not pretty either. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I feel Anything like the entire digital forensic community was not pretty in the beginning.
0: <laughs> no, no, it was bad. It was uh, 12 days of pulling the plug, you know, from the back of the machine and no RAM at all. I mean, it was different. You know, it was easier, I guess, if you look back on it that way, you know, smaller hard drives, you know, now we have terabytes and we're not even imaging. We're just um, grabbing what we need and, and moving from there. It's a different world. You know. Yeah.
1: I know. Speaking of different worlds, like undercover work, can you talk us through exactly like what that was like?
2: How long were you undercover for? Was it like, oh. what, like you were positioned for a series for like, in one position over time, or was it you'd kind of jump into different roles, jump in and out of it?
0: Yeah, I was. Uh, I don't know if everyone does it this way, but I was uh, doing both at the same time. I had long term undercover cases, you know, like a year. Um, but within that year, I was doing, you know, quick buy bust and short term undercover cases. So, and it wasn't just for my agency. Okay, let me, let me. Let me set the stage here. It's, uh, so, uh, my agency had my agency had two undercover narc positions. You know, me and another guy, and we would, we did street level cases. So my uh, my first my first first drug deal um, with that bad partner. I'm sitting in the office and I go, "How do we do? How do we do this work? I have no training. You know, I, I drove around in a police car and I rode a bicycle. You know, and he goes, "Well, um, you can just call up a drug dealer, and order some drugs." And I go, really? I mean, is that? He goes, yeah. Here's here's some numbers from someone who got arrested. So I go, all right. So I'm uh, I'm making it's called code calls. I'm making these calls on the phone. I got these burner phones, code phones, and I'm making these calls. I'm I don't even know what I'm ordering. I'm going, hey, I, I, I want to buy hundred dollars worth of whatever, right? And that's how I got started. Was uh, code calling, and some of those were so bad of um, safety issues. That's when I was questioning this job. How do people do this job? So I was doing a lot of those street-level buys, blindly meeting people on the street and, uh, and buying crack and meth. And some drugs are worse than others because of the, the, the personalities of changing, meth addicts kind of thing. So then some of the cases became more task force level cases. So where, where I would buy some drugs and then that person would say, please don't send me to prison. I know this bigger guy. And then I'd have a kilo of cocaine or three kilos of cocaine, you know, and it'd get bigger and bigger. And eventually I'm in a state task force doing those type of things um, some of the cases that i made in my state task force were kind of transferred over to a federal task force and then the federal task force kind of recruited me over to them so then i was doing those federal cases so i have so that was the foundation of what i was doing the street level to the these federal cases and then from there i'm working all these different agencies for undercover work so i was doing um Street level buys for some agency who had they they wanted a uh, an unknown narc basically in their city to do some drug buys because all their narks are known. So I go to their city and I do some some undercover buys because I'm a new face. I don't I've never been in that city before. They don't know me. Uh, yeah. For the federal cases, I was doing DEA, uh, FBI, ICE, Homeland, um, all over the place, um, all different places, states, out of country stuff, uh, some foreign agencies. Uh, whether it be you know RCMP or different agencies, other other countries. So I was doing those things too, and when I'm not doing those long term cases where I, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody. I mean, we're doing like a 200 kilo cocaine negotiations for a month, you know, you know for for one deal, uh, airplanes delivering a thousand pounds of BC bud and that sort of stuff. Some guns. Uh, invariably, there's some uh, human trafficking aspects that would pop up in the cases. So I had. A, those would show up. And that would you're driving a car in a drug case and then you, you come across a, a 13 year old girl that's being sold. Well now the, the drug case <laughs> goes right to human trafficking. Oh and then we, we and that pretty much ends the case. With with drug cases we'd we'd um we'd carried out I think one of my cases is probably still going because it gets a big umbrella of a organized crime case and all these spin offs happen and wiretaps and but once there's a human trafficking aspect of it, the drugs usually stop. Um, whatever PC exists for charging, they'll be charged, but they might work working on the, the trafficking part. So that was only, and the, the terrorism, sometimes it'd be a terrorism link that, that now that gets driven to a different direction <laughs> for that way. So uh, the drugs were kind of central to everything, but there's so many other spinoff cases that would happen. I was selling um, houses. At, at one point for mortgage mortgage fraud, so you had um, drug dealers who were laundering money through housing through houses through a dirty lawyers who you know escrow and I mean it was just it was so complicated that um, I, I didn't know what I was doing for the most part um, because of you know the, the amount of money we had a plane of a million dollars in cash in the air with some DEA agents. For flash cash for drugs and another, I mean, trading coke with cars. We had um. oh
1: my
0: gosh. Okay, another way, Seattle had a stolen car problem, right? As most cities do. So, in this one drug case, you know, I have an informant going to a drug a, uh, a dealer, a car dealer, a used car dealer shop. And it turned out to be instead of buying drugs, trading drugs for cars was the thing. And so I get introduced and now I'm trading stolen cars for drugs. So I talked to state patrol here and they say we have a lot of recovery. This is something new, maybe you don't know. I didn't know. When a car gets recovered, that's stolen and insurance pays for that car, a- apparently the owner doesn't get the car back because they got a new car. And now that car is kind of like property of the, of the state or whoever recovers it and they have to auction off or whatever it is. So this trooper, he goes, yeah, we have so many stolen cars that are recovered. Owners have already been paid off and we have these cars. So you can trade them for drugs if you want. <laughs> so And you're
1: just sitting there go, hmm, which uh, one, well,
0: <laughs> which one? Yeah, so we're, now we're trading these stolen cars for drugs. So we're getting drugs and drug charges and I don't have to spend any money. State patrols give them these stolen cars. And the only thing they asked were, they wanted the stat for recovering the car again as I recovered stolen. I'm going, you can have whatever you want. So I'm trading stolen cars, now we get into houses, we got mortgage fraud. So those were the cases that I did for almost 10 years of, of that. And, and then the T, the T type cases, which I kind of passed those off as, as fast as possible. But a lot of those things. That was, so, and the squeezing the forensics of that, yeah.
1: That's a huge spider web of just everything.
0: Okay. Well, I'd, I mean, a dozen code phones at a time I was, uh, carrying around and there was a point where I had to put a label on what my name was on some of them and who my who's calling this phone and that phone. And it was just, uh, I felt like a drug dealer. I mean, it was, uh,
2: yeah. What kind of, yeah. um, I guess, uh, undercover detection tactics did you see employed while you're doing that? Like people that would try to do something to test you and, um, yeah. you know, just verify who you were.
0: Everything. Um, except for using drugs. I've, I've never had that come up. And that's, what I learned, if you're doing street level drugs, those verification things are very dangerous because those street level people who are usually drug addicts, like hardcore drug addicts. So they watch a lot of movies and it's really dangerous. You know, so whoever does unstable, street, yeah. Unstable, it's just dangerous. And for most of those, um, that's why when I got to the higher level, it's probably it's actually just as dangerous, um, just not when you're dealing in negotiations. So uh, let me. I was doing this one undercover case with um, it's the Big Circle Boys. It's the name of this um, the Chinese mafia right So in California, we're doing and I'm meeting this guy from China, and we're talking about drugs, in a restaurant, and we're openly talking about drugs. Um, Hundred thousand pills of ecstasy this, that, and the other. I mean, blatantly just saying ecstasy, cocaine or whatever. And it it was nothing unusual. But on a street level, buys that I've always done, if I were to say the word crack or cocaine, they'd immediately think, uh, you know, this is a trap because we're supposed to use code words. But in the upper level, there's no such thing as code words for the most part. Um, It's um, you're plainly speaking English and you're also plainly speaking about killing people, um, getting killed, (laughs) those sort of things. So (laughs) The communications were much easier for high level. Um, I mean, I sat with people who kill people, legitimately, and uh, I've been given the phone numbers of if you have a collections problem, call this guy. Uh, he can twist a head off like a top. You know, was one statement. And uh, that's
1: that's one way to picture it.
0: Right. So there's it's it's easier that there's no miscommunications because everyone's clear. Um, I've had on the street level actually street level and I had a meth like a 15 pound meth deal with a Mexican national who came over to deliver in a, in a, in a small plane from Mexico, um, you know, he put a gun in my gut, patted me down. He missed my body wire and it was over in about five or so seconds. I mean, it wasn't like um, anyone's gonna come and rescue me. It was uh, one of those gun in the gut, patted me down misses the wire and i'm thinking the whole time well as soon as he finds that wire it's going to be a struggle here but he he, he totally missed the wire and uh so it was over and i figure okay he's he's comfortable now thank goodness but yeah no kidding that's that's probably the closest i come for it wasn't a, a uh you know stripped down naked type of thing it was uh i think he's he did it probably to to see how it would react you know and but it was so fast if he would have slowed down it would have been a different reaction but it was just yeah a quick thing but that
1: is so yeah. stressful i would when not you, be able to handle that <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, well, one thing yeah. that's that it seems interesting within the government is there's a quite a range of training opportunities just depending on who's who's who and what the resources are and there's still a lot of you know fairly untrained people doing like you were saying like really dangerous stuff like still going out and doing the work so when you were first starting out and you didn't have a lot of training did you have like when you're out doing a buy or meeting somebody on the street to actually do an exchange, did you have support? Like if something went wrong, somebody was around the corner that could come help you or was this like you
0: were solo? For the most part, there was always a team a okay. team there. Um, I mean, there's cover teams, there's rescue teams, or arrest teams and all these different teams. And sometimes it's only a few people. Uh, when I first started, it was one person, was it my partner who uh, just basically winged it, you know, and uh, winging it is fine. And- you know, for a podcast, but it's definitely not fine for a drug deal. <laughs> so it's uh, my first year is basically winging it, and that was uh, that. Ended up a lot of bad things happened really with with that. But um, learning of well, you can have a rescue team, and you can have this team, and you can have this surveillance and body wires and all these neat things. So I mean, now it's better. I, I can't imagine doing that work in the '60s or the '70s. I mean, it'd be insane. But I still I I know that there are still agencies that do crazy stupid stuff like that, um, and they don't really have to because the training training tells you um yeah don't do that don't go to somebody's house, you know unarmed you know and those things still happen because people choose to do those things so mm-hmm. whenever I met narcs who yeah would tell me what the cases that they're doing I just shake my head and go man it's not worth I mean the guy's going to get thirty days maybe if if you convict him <laughs> you know and so. You know, there's there's safe ways to do things and sometimes even safe ways isn't a, a good way. I've had guns pointed at me by cops during arrest, you know, because I mean, just a lot of things can happen, even though people are trained. There's one, you have an example of a case. I was doing a dangerous case with, with dangerous people and it was my stupidity was as an undercover, I'm going to do it because I want the arrogance of a I'm the best undercover. It's just stupidity of having the the mentality. It's just like doing forensics. You, you're you're type A because you wanna you wanna be the person that finds the evidence and proves it, and I and I was right. Undercover is the same thing. You just you, but you have to have a, a um some kind of line where you say, well, there's a point where I don't know, i want to stop it there. And there's a point where someone's gotta you know tell me, yeah, let let the let do that a different way or like expertise. You know, I I know Windows well, but I don't know Sun systems. Therefore, I'm not gonna claim expertise but in this case i was being stupid and saying i'm going to do this undercover myself and uh so i had a swat i was on swat at the time so i had swat be my uh, rescue for this planned takedown so i said let's have a training exercise so in case something happens you can practice this so i'm mm-hmm. pretending to be the bad guy in his role playing thing with my other partner and every time swat would come into a rescue me I would get shot with some some munitions, and we just go over and over again. And I'm I'm getting shot every single time. And it got to the point I I said, look, I said, um, if I'm fighting the bad guy during this arrest, run in, don't shoot until you jam the barrel into the guy's body and then pull the trigger. And I that was my rule of uh for hostage rescue is uh just run in and jam the and I'd still get shot. And I thought, yeah, this is a dangerous job. You <laughs> <So>, um, know, <laughs> they're just it was almost like we need to color code these these uh, sim rounds to see who's shooting me but it was uh, I'm, i'll paint it in orange you know so, so it was just, yeah. it, it's just a, it's a fun job but it's a it's a dangerous job too so
1: yeah so that's got to be impactful on your personal life like with your relationship with family and friends how do you manage that
0: yeah um it's um it's interesting i guess uh, not if, if you're there's a lot of undercover officers who um, do it like street level buys it's not long-term undercover assignments but i was doing a lot of long-term so i definitely didn't want to tell everybody i was doing undercover work just because um, i was bumped, i bumped into people who my targets off duty i uh, once at an airport once in a parking lot you know at a restaurant so um the long-term ones are kind of scary because you're more into um one person bought me a condominium and gave me a choice of Cadillacs. He loved Cadillacs. And What'd you go that with? personal, I just went, I didn't want to meet. I, I told him I didn't like him. So I, oh, okay. I, I wasn't going to drive. I didn't know it's GPS or anything. I just figured uh, I'll drive my own car. <laughs> you know, and I never lived in that condo. I took it, I visited just to show that I was there, but I didn't want to live in his condo either. So, dealing, and he's the one, you will know, kill people, you know, kind of kind of guy. So I didn't want to tell everybody what I was doing and you won't find any pictures of me online ever from those i didn't take pictures of myself or allow pictures to be taken of myself during that time just because you know it's it's a scary world when you're dealing with people who kill people for a living for little things you know so with family i didn't really um talk at all um about it besides my wife obviously told her you know everything and sometimes i was followed well let me put it another way I know I was followed sometimes, but other times I don't know if I was followed. Um, and it, the whole range of gamut I've had uh, friends approach me while I'm talking to somebody who's a target in an undercover meeting role. You know, and I'd have to yell at them, like, I don't know who the F you th- think I am kind of thing, but, you know, I'm busy here and later had to apologize to him. Hey, uh, j- just in case, <laughs> you know, you see me talking to somebody. It may or may not be a police officer. <laughs> so, um, so it's a different lifestyle. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah so I'm just curious, uh, from a story perspective, I think it's always interesting. Like when you bumped into like one of your targets when you're off duty, like at the airport or, or whatever, how did you handle that? What what happened?
0: Yeah, it's just like mopping into a friend. I mean, it's uh no one I mean, typically and then the way I, I see it is um if I bump into um, a friend, they're on the way to do something and I'm on the way to do something. And rarely do you tell the other friend, hey, I'm on the way to, to go see my shrink or my doctor or pick up my kids. You know, it's one of those, hey, I'm some I'm the way out of here or whatever. And that's kind of how it went because they're not gonna tell me, Hey, I'm a, I'm on my way to go buy a Coke. <laughs> yeah, me too. You know, so it's one of those, hey, it's up to uh you know, catch you you later. Yeah, short, really small talk, um, and then and then move on. Yeah gotcha
2: but yeah so as as you kind of got more involved with it did you eventually then find yourself in like better training programs um maybe even like some seer programs or anything like that
0: yeah i did um when i started taking training i think the first class that i was going through it might have been the first day or the second day and i verbalized i knew i was doing it wrong (laughs) so uh, (laughs) so that's when i started realizing yeah i need some some training and set up a better process for my agency. So I, I created a, uh, it's a turnover folder, really, for for my to the new partners. I go, I right, you know what. From now on, the next person that comes in, they're going to have a binder of how to do this work. They need to go through this training before they do any undercover work. They got to go to this training and they got to do this and they got to do that because um, the way that the winging it is the way people get hurt uh, on both sides. You know, you can. It's just too many things that can go wrong with winging it, and uh, so I wing a lot of things, but. I would never recommend winging that one because uh, it's, it's not good. It never turns out good.
1: Yeah. I can imagine there's so many different, like if you have more control over the situation and you're not winging it, then the outcome is going to be definitely better.
0: Yeah. And uh, unfortunately that field, just like forensics, has a lot of type A personalities. So you have a lot of people who are, uh, you know, singly focused on one target and blocking everybody else out. so it's, Having that personality of um, this is the way I want to do it, but please give me some input. I'll, I'll take it. You know, it's gonna be hard, but I'll take it. Forensics is the same way. When you're when you think when you think you're right, and someone's telling you Dude, you're, you're wrong, you know, you have to be able to open to say, okay, show me where I'm wrong. Let me look at it, and if I'm wrong, I'll admit I'm wrong. But yeah, the ones who the ones who don't look at it that way, they're going to be wrong in a big way, and it, it's kind of a ruining career kind of thing attitude.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I I can relate to that and pull the plug approach.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it always seems to work out. No, I actually used to work with um, an analyst, and I was trying to help that analyst and mentor that person. And I was saying, you know, sometimes when you have this gut reaction, but you can't back it up by any of the evidence, then it might not be what you think it is. Like you're just too far down in the rabbit hole, step back, have somebody else peer review that work, see if they see any type of holes or gaps in your work. And maybe those will, you know, connect the dots. And this person was adamant that they were correct the whole time and it did not end well. Um, that person ended up providing some evidence and that report back to the customer and it got thrown out.
2: Yep. Yeah. Attribution is, is really kind of a difficult thing. Um, because we had like i mean just like for example there was uh so when I was in Afghanistan there was um this uh ana i think he was a colonel but he was applying to come to the US and we had one of his drives from his phone and some of the card files came back as um some child abuse uh images that were recovered from that um yeah it was on his device but it was had been completely deleted we don't we can't attribute that card to being in his possession the entire time so it's it's one of those things where it's like it was in his possession, it was likely his, but you can't you can't definitively prove that. Because he could have given the card yep. to somebody else, or it could have been a friend that handed in the card and had deleted it previously, and he just was like, hey, I need a card. Um, yeah, it can be really difficult.
1: And you think about the impact that that could have had on that person's life if you were wrong, right? And you yeah. just kept pushing forward.
0: Right, yeah. Oh, great. Well, I've given this example. Recently, I give this example a lot. There's a case in Washington state in uh, Spokane, AF, I think it was a Lieutenant. I'm pretty sure it was a Lieutenant firefighter who was charged and arrested for child pornography possession based off um, credit card purchases, his credit card. And he was fired. You, you can imagine what family happened, you know, yeah. I, I, he may have got divorced. I'm not sure at that time, but all these other things are happening he was innocent not guilty because it was lazy work it was a stolen credit card he actually reported it to his bank it's stolen someone had used it down and nothing came back to his house apparently i mean it was just the probably a lazy work he sued he won uh state patrol apologized publicly on you know the news but you're right that damage that is done it's irreparable you can't you can't fix it's like if someone trying to damages your, your reputation on the Internet, um, you really can't fix those things. Or in a right. court filing, somebody says something about you that's negative. How do you fix that? I mean, money can, if it's a lot, <laughs> but your <laughs> reputation is still going to be, it's, only, it's not going to fix your reputation, but it's going to make you feel a bit better. So yeah, those kind of cases, yeah.
1: And still, if anybody looks him up and then doesn't do the diligence of looking at like how that ended, they just look up right. and look up the you know top three searches on the individual and it's like oh well clearly i don't want to be friends with this person or associated with this person um yeah. that's horrible And there, there's yeah. cases
0: like that there's several like that and uh it's attribution is a big thing you, you have to do a good job otherwise uh everyone looks bad yeah yep.
2: yeah what is it a lie will make a lap around the earth before the truth puts its shoes on yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> jared is notorious for all these types of sayings all the time <laughs> i don't know where he gets them all but i like...
2: like to throw stuff in there <laughs> yeah where did you swim with sharks that was in uh, in mexico
0: it was a uh, not intentional I just um
2: yeah it was i was gonna say was it did you intentionally swim with sharks or was this the kind of thing where like the floor opens up and there's a pool of sharks and they're like get in we need to see if you're a cop
0: yeah that one it's a there's <laughs> some sharks yeah well, there's a uh, most things I've done is non intentional. It's just, um, you know, you, Hey, it's a fire. Is it hot? Oh, it's hot. Okay. That's so dumb. That, that's the kind of things that I take a note on. I put that. it in a book. Yeah. I mean, there's, I did write that. You mentioned that fell off a cliff thing that mm-hmm. was, um, that was in Hawaii. It just, a it's a dumb story, but there's this cliff in Hawaii and it's overlooking this little water hole. And I'm with all the Marine buddies, I'm new there. And they're all saying, uh, you know, I'm a boot. I'm, you know, the new guy. And all the salts, you know, salty. We've all jumped off that cliff, but you're too chicken. So what do I do? Call me chicken once, right? So I climb up there and I'm sliding. It's all muddy and wet up there. And I'm slipping and sliding and I'm looking down and it's it's probably 40 feet. And uh, I'm going out of time, that's really Scary looking, and I'm thinking, "Yeah, oh, these guys are really tough because uh, and brave." Because I feel like I'm chicken, and uh, then they're saying, "Now we're just kidding. None of us ever jumped f- from there, you know." Get down. So I said, "Oh, thank God!" So uh, I turn, and as I turn, I slip in the mud, and I slide to the edge of that—it's um, a cliff—and I'm—I'm uh, trying to grab the rocks on the way down, and all I'm doing is I'm ripping my fingernails off on the rocks. Oh. So I, I tear my fingernails and I'm looking down and there's this huge boulder in the middle of the small little water hole and I missed <laughs> the boulder by in, inches probably. And, uh, and I, no. and I hit the bottom. Yeah. I hit, I hit the bottom and I, and I come up and everybody thought I was dead. I got blood everywhere and uh, I'm not feeling anything. I just th- thankful to be alive. <laughs> and, uh, it felt like a hundred foot drop because I'm, I'm yelling all the way down. I got, Two or three sentences out i think before i hit the water but it was, uh, <laughs> oh no that's 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 the falling off the cliff thing of, of uh, yeah you know let, let's not be too stupid next time <laughs> and do and don't listen to everybody <laughs> just so oh, that sharks gosh. everything unintentional uh, so
1: mexico's the sharks crypt, <laughs> falling off a cliff was hawaii um any how other fast
0: were you going in your chases
1: oh uh, there's the question do you want um, to really
0: know <laughs> over over 100. You know, on a freeway. Over yeah. a neighborhood, never that like that, but on freeways, I've I've chased people well over a hundred. Did you get them? Um, if not, then eventually, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've chased people on my bicycle before, and um. Like a pedal away.
1: bike or a like motorcycle.
0: Pedal bike, and uh, they've gotten <laughs> all gotten away, <laughs> so it's just.
1: Yeah, you can only go so fast. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. For about a oh block. My
1: gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no thanks. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So where else have you traveled? Like, um, So Hawaii, it sounds like that was when you were, you said you were a Marine. Um, that was when you were in the military. Was Mexico when you were an undercover yeah. cop?
0: No, uh, where both, else has your
1: tra- Oh, okay.
0: Both, both family and, and both. But, uh, and then world travel in the Marines, couple of deployments and a lot of family travel. So. Where have you Asia, traveled? Asia, Korea, Southeast Asia, a couple of different places there. Um, Europe, trip there. Uh, Mexico, Canada, obviously, that's right there. Um, you know, little small islands, Guam, Kwajalein, some other islands. I can't even pronounce their names.
1: Uh, but what was Japan. your favorite?
0: Um, I had to say Japan. My wife's from Japan, so I say Japan. It's my favorite. <laughs>
1: Oh, so you have to say it,
0: smart man. to say, especially being recorded. You have to say, yeah. Recorded,
1: have to say <laughs> Japan. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: But it's, it's true. It's true. So. Uh, what
1: what what makes it your favorite, other than it, your wife is from there? Is it the food? Is it the culture? Is it the sights?
0: Um, probably everything. It was the first country that I've ever gone to, yeah, outside the U.S. When I was uh, I was seventeen, joined the Marines, and I ended up um, you know stationed in Hawaii, which is almost like another country, some somewhat, because it's so far removed from. You know the mainland, mainland conus, but then Japan was my first country that I went to, and you know, see Mount Fuji. You know, I got off the ship, and I went, "Oh my gosh, that's a, a big." I was from Louisiana, and I was you know lived in New York and Texas, Louisiana, so I didn't see any mountains. That was probably one of the first mountains I saw, and and the food and the culture, um, just you know, quite different and amazing in uh, many aspects. But yeah, that's probably my and a lot of the. Um, the sight to see besides mount fuji there's the culture the thousands of years of you know traditions and those things pretty amazing compared to you know a lot of other other countries
2: yeah i'd love to go i was hoping to go to the olympics there when they they would have been in 2020 starting to look at trying to figure out how to make that happen and you know obviously yeah, and they had it. the bullet
0: train there you go the bullet train so
2: and the bullet train yeah <laughs> Um Brett, do you have a hard stop at three or do you have a few extra minutes?
0: I'm good to go whenever I okay so because we usually
2: yeah. do um we have an experts react sections where we play clips of you know something that um, applies to the the people in the conversation um but I also before we jumped into that, coming it back to the x way books that's coming up um, uh, since it's a, a new edition, it's updated what is it that you want people to get from that like what is um like, why would somebody look specifically at that book?
0: Yeah, that's um, that's a good question because the manual is so bad uh, for the software. And I'll say that openly, because I've I personally told Stefan Fleischmann, who's the CEO of this years ago, when we first met, I said, I don't like your manual. Um, it's hard to read. It really is hard to read. And his opinion was, um, too bad. Um, it, it's not written to teach you forensics. You should you should know forensics and kind of figure it out yourself for w- where the software works. And my opinion was, um, yeah, but I, I can't learn that way. I, I don't think people learn that way. And so it's a culture difference, I think, you know, because different cultures have different ways of of learning and perception. And so I said, well, you know, I, I think it'd be better if it's rewritten in a different way. And so this book is written in that manner. So that's why it's called it a practitioner's guide. Mm-hmm. It's not a user's guide of how the software works, like how to build a, a, a you know, 350 V8. It's, a, it's how to turn on the ignition, hit the gas and go. So that's the way the book is geared for that. So for those who use um, X-Ways uh, forensics, this, I, it's written in a manner that you can pick up the book and you can learn how to use it. Maybe without taking training right off the bat, but obviously training is great. But going through the manual, it's just a pain to find the answer. And I've had so many people tell me they've, they've tried to control F the PDF and manual and the answer is not in there because it's not written to tell you how to use it. But the book is, and that's that's the purpose of the of the book. And for those who use it, this is the book to tell you how to use it. It's, um, it's not simple like third grade English, you know, this is, but it is simple down to, um, if you want to carve pictures, click these buttons. Um, if you want to do this, click these buttons. So that's, I guess that's the main point of the book. Okay, awesome. We're actually it's...
1: working through our user manual. Maybe we should give it to Brett so that he can review <laughs> yeah. it and give us very honest feedback. <laughs> yeah, I
2: was thinking, what
0: didn't you like about their manual?
1: <laughs> <laughs> just asking for Brett. Um,
0: <laughs> you know, there's not a lot I like about the manual, really. I, I use it for the book because I, I read and I I just gave a class on x-rays and but well, I take examples of the manual, and I would read it out loud, and it sounds like a Ph.D. dissertation in a foreign language. And I'm not saying that in a mean way; of uh, it's so bad. I'm just saying that when you need to find the answer, and then I translate it into, you know, four sentences. You know, take a paragraph, I have a half page, put it down in four sentences. This is what I think it's saying in four sentences. And then everybody goes, "I got it. Yeah, much better." So that's the way I like manuals to be read. First off like my wife says, genetically men don't like to read the manual. So I, I don't. Um, any software I, I, I try before I even look at the manual, I want to see how intuitive it is. Um, can I figure it out first? And then I'll go into the manual to get the, the nitty gritty details of it. So I, that's why I I look at software. I don't use software without learning it. But part of my learning process is um, where's all the buttons? How's it laid out? Right clicks, left clicks, all this secret stuff. If I can figure it out, then, it, then it's developed well and if I can't I'm going to the manual and the manual doesn't do it justice then I say it's not working that I don't want to use this tool because I, I can't figure it out and I can't even read the manual to figure it out so x-rays works very well but that manual is, is a hindrance I think and uh, I say it publicly because and I say it for any, any software if um, if it's good I'll say it's good and if it's bad I'll try not to say it's bad publicly without first saying uh, you know um, that button needs to go someplace else <laughs> or um this, this one really isn't working, you know? So, um, honesty is probably the better part of uh, making things better, I guess, in a nice way. I'm not mean to people. I don't, I don't say your software sucks, you know, but I'll say, hey, it's, it's good, but it could be a little bit better for me, you know? So that's why that yeah. book is uh, hopefully helps people use that tool better.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. I think a lot of people lack the ability to provide constructive feedback in a way that's actually helpful without tearing the person down. Um, so I don't think there's a lot of people that know how to do that and do it well enough where it's actually successful and solves for that problem.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, another case in point is uh, Windows FE or WinFE, the you know bootable Windows disk. Uh, you know, Troy Larson from Microsoft developed that. And if basically, it's a, a WinPE that boots computers forensically, right, to, to be uh, right protected. So Troy had we, had, we had a conference meeting or, or something. For meeting or whatever, some digital forensic meeting or something, and he comes up and he goes. He gives me the uh, his instructions to build it, and this is way back. And he goes first. He says, "Would you be interested in a Windows forensic environment operating system?" And I go, would I I go oh, in my mind these visions of grandeur, grandeur in my head of a Windows OS that's forensic. Of course, I want it." He goes, "Here's how. Here's the instructions how to build it." And I go, "What?" So I, I look at the instructions and. Uh, I took it home and I tried I, I gave up. I go, oh my God. <laughs> I go, I got I gotta do this command line to build this batch file to build this Win P. and I'm going, oh my gosh. So I didn't I didn't bother with it for a while. And I saw him again and then he gives a demonstration of running it. It's command line prompt, you know, and everything. And then he runs FTK imager in it. And I went, whoa, you can run FTK imager in it. And so then I try x-rays in it. So I build it and I try x-rays and they go, whoa, you can run x-rays in this. Yeah. And uh, I said, oh, this has some, some potential, but no one is building it. Because at first I think it was law enforcement only, you know, and I kind of had to the preview of that. But to build it's kind of a pain in the neck and using disc part, if you know that PE thing, disc part's kind of a pain in the neck too. It has a problem dynamic disc, put him on and off. It just want a bunch of problems. So eventually um, we kind of build it where a GUI build. You can build with the GUI, it comes up. It looks like Windows. It's not a command prop. You can run x-rays in it. You, you can run a bunch of programs in it. And now a lot of people are using it. I have a little guides. I'm giving it. I'm teaching it everywhere. More people are using it. It's being taught at, uh, I think, Flexi and IASIS and all these things. And my whole intention was, I want to use this on cases. Therefore, everyone needs to use it, too. <laughs> because if they don't use it, I don't want to be the only one saying, yeah, It's valid. Because i say so i rather have people say it's valid because a lot of people say it's valid
2: yeah so court same with software, peer peer
0: peer um, peer reviewed community supported valid tool and every software has to be that way otherwise no one's going to use it so for the good tools i try to push push that because i because i want to use it in court therefore I, everyone's got to use it so that's my uh that's my, my intention on sharing guides telling people this is good please use it because the more the, more cases with it. The better for everybody
1: okay. yeah absolutely
2: this new edition of the book does it pick up where the first one left off or can people just pick this book up and um basically get the updated information do they need to see go through the first book to understand the second book
0: no it's um it's a revision of the first book with the addition of all the changes from the software so you can pick it up from the start here's how you install it all the way to the advanced Here's how to use it and the other thing we did different was I offered um, whoever uses x-rays okay I'm big on expertise for um, professionalism and helping people get a job get promoted and testify in court as, as experts and, and one of those ways is writing uh, white papers and journals and, and and books so what I did was I offered whoever uses x-rays if you're brave enough send me your your a process that you use x-rays with and and uh, I'll, if it, it i'll peer review it you know we'll look at it and if it works we'll put it in a book so i got about i think 10 people who were brave enough to uh, send me this is how i i use x-rays you know and and, and it's it, good stuff and and it works so they're all going in a book okay. so that's very cool so now they're going to have a uh, and it's copyright free for them that they can use they can photocopy those pages staple it to their resume they can go to a drive interview and say i use x ray forensics my pr- I process that i use or developed it's been peer reviewed, it's in the book, the only book for x-rays. They can use it in trial for expertise. So that's a, a way to um, to help, you know, if you wanna build up your resume, this is one of the ways to do it for free, just send it in. You
1: know. Yeah, absolutely. For those that are listening that don't know, um, where do you advertise that and where would they submit it if they wanted their stuff peer reviewed?
0: Um, well, that one is done now because the uh, the book is about to be submitted for final print. So, um, I, that one is done. But for far as peer reviewing everywhere else, um, there's a DFIR review is probably my first. I don't know. The website is a DFIRreview.com or something. I had to look it up, but I'll, I'll send it to you, the, the website. So that would be my first choice to uh, submit something for peer review. And the second is legitimate journals. You know, uh, there's a lot of different journals for forensics and there's a um, I guess my, my opinion is going to play in here. If you have a blog post and you came up with something you um, and not even if you just came up for something, if you took someone else's process and you validated it yourself in a blog post, I would suggest send that to DFIR review. And the reason is DFI review, it's it's Jessica Hyde. It's a whole bunch of you, me, me her and a whole bunch of others are reviewing these um, blog posts basically. And if, if they're good, they get published with a DOI number. Um, I mean, they're there for eternity. People can cite them in cases with a, "Here's a peer-reviewed thing that I did," and it, it's fast. Um, it's you're looking at weeks or a few months at the at the latest, depending how busy everybody is, because it's all volunteer. Compared to a legitimate, and I say legitimate, traditional uh, white paper journal, where it may take a year plus to do that. So, and that's a diff- and there's some rules beyond. Um, if you submit once, if you submit before, you can't submit it to this journal, that sort of thing. So I would say, look at the DFI review, if you have something, and I say blog post, because if you've already written it up, right? You can look at something you already wrote and just submit it. And there's an easy format, basically PDF it and submit it or, or make it pretty in a in Word document. And it can be peer reviewed. And if it's not valid, if there's something wrong with it, we'll tell you uh, good initiative, but you know, Take a look at these things first, you know, next time and resubmit and work through it and uh, get something that's peer reviewed. And then that's, I think, a wonderful thing that we have in this field that a lot of fields don't have, where if you want a peer reviewed medical journal, you, you got to be a doctor. You know, So here you don't have to be a doctor, you just be a forensic person. And you can you can write a legitimate peer reviewed article that can benefit you in a, a job interview or promotion, a court expertise, resume, everything and personal development.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks. We'll be sure to throw those up at the end of the um, the podcast so people can find them easily.
0: So, experts
2: right. react. Uh, oh, let's jump into this. Okay, so I'll just set this scene up. So, Donnie Brasco is a Hollywood rendition of um, an FBI agent who was undercover for 10 years, or about I think about 10 years or so. Um, really interesting story. So, if people haven't seen it, go and check it out. Um, but this particular scene... Um, Donnie who's obviously undercover is meeting, um, a fairly high up crime boss person, mafia type of person who's bringing him a diamond to try to do some kind of exchange. And Donnie basically tells him the diamond's a fake. So the guy's obviously not happy. And he's like, we're going to go back to the original source and figure out who, who sold this to me. And so, um, kind of the, the point of this is I wanted to show, Just how um, Donnie, the undercover uh, person, has to think on the fly in this situation and just like how delicate the situation can be and really kind of highlight that. So um, if you can't hear this when I kick it off, let me know.
0: You owe me eight grand. No, hold, hold, hold on, wait. Wait, I, I gave you the diamond. Left. So Donnie's the guy on the right. He says it's a fugazi. What's a fugazi? The diamond's are fugazi. Oh, no, what, what is a fugazi? Come on, you know. Don't you tell me what I know. You know what you did, pal. Uh, one of you's gotta be wrong. The, no, that's, that's a Tiffany fucking diamond. Left, that is my wife's fucking diamond ring. It's a fugazi, that... Hang on, I don't know what your problem is. Hey, Left. Eight
1: thousand dollars. Let me talk to this fucking
0: guy for a second. Just give me a half a fucking second with a guy, would you? $8,000. Lefty, why don't you go to the bar and uh, have a drink? Let me, let me talk to the guy for a minute. Come on. Hey, I got a fucking black belt, pal. You fucking This guy is gonna fucking kill you. You understand what I'm saying? Now we got about two minutes to figure a way out of this thing. I'm sorry. Right, you sorry?
1: <clears throat> oh, so shut the fuck
2: up. Sorry ain't gonna kill this. I don't wanna die. Yeah? I
0: don't wanna die. What kind of car are you drive? A Porsche. And a case. Oh. Oh. Open the keys. Fucking oh. keys. <laughs> all right. Whose car is it now? Left Lefties left. All oh, right, go. That's for the fucking drinks, bro. One way. Okay. Well,
2: yeah. So I guess <laughs> one of the things I'm curious about, um, yeah, just like, how was it like having to react quickly in like intense situations? Or does that, did that portray in any capacity, some of the experiences that you felt you
0: might have had? You know, it's, um, I think every time is a something intense happens, right? Um, and you don't know when something's going to go bad. And this one, I saw that movie long ago. I can't remember all of it. Uh, so I don't know if those diamonds were fake or real at that time. I mean, it, it, for the movie's sake. But if you're going with fake, if you they know they're fake and you're going to collect, basically, then you know there's going to be some some danger because you have a bad guy going to collect from another bad guy and you're the undercover there. So that's a kind of danger. And um, you're know, assaulting somebody while you're undercover. It's got to be a pretty dire situation um, if you're doing it as an undercover role of a you know, grabbing someone by the hair and dragging them over by the, you know, the stage and, and kneeing them and stuff. So that's gotta be some dire uh, situation for that to happen. You know, I don't think that um, Albertino would have shot him in that club, but but who knows? That's, I haven't had that kind of happen. Um, but with with uh, fake stuff or, or not knowing, you know, what you don't know undercover, I've had a, uh, well, I was doing kind of a, uh, uh, airdrop case, you know, I don't know anything about airplanes, right? And the, the guy who's telling me he has a pilot talking to me about airdrops and then the pilot comes to the table. He's telling me how he does airdrops and the packaging and all thinking, and, and I, I said, I, I don't have no idea. I said, just tell me where to pick it up. I said, I, I don't know anything about airplanes. And I came across more credible than trying to, um, to fake something. So here we have... Donnie Brasco, I mean, th- with the diamonds being fake or not and him telling the guy you're going to get killed and we need to work this way out. Um, it's kind of iffy I'm. it's almost coming out a role of, you know, he's going to kill you. So I'm not trying to help you. So I'm not sure. I've never had that come. I've had a lot of things for I don't know anything about that. You know, cookie math. I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, Airdrops, submarines, I have no idea. Just give me the drugs. <laughs> That's all I know. I can <laughs> sell it. So yeah that makes but sense but Good can do So uh
2: yeah it was uh it's definitely interesting i yeah i can't remember if the if the diamonds were fake or not either it's one of those that i want to go back and listen to but yeah i think the the whole story with with him um he got pretty deep and it like just really messed him up um and they were trying to like work with his wife to get him to you know basically like come out of this one of the other things Um, that i'm curious about because throughout the movie he actually builds a pretty close relationship with lefty the the mob guy um did you ever experience that where some of your targets you actually started to build rapport with in a, a capacity where you actually had some kind of uh
0: friendship um not not really friendship i think seeing a different perspective more than anything um there you know there's some that you know, that's their, not just a way of life, but a way of survival. Uh, life tra- a series of tragedies in their life and then they end up doing that. It's like, well, you know, I, I feel really bad for you. That doesn't mean that you're not committing crimes and that sort of thing. So I've seen that perspective. Um, others know there's some social paths out there who are, there's definitely, you can't be friends with it. And there's many who are um, very loyal I mean, to the point of um, when when someone is giving you phone numbers to people who kill people as a favor, right? That's a lot of loyalty. Of um, hey, if you if you have a collection, call this guy. Or if somebody else says, Hey, um, if you need a favor for this, go here. Th- that's a strong loyalty. So it's it's easy to um to take loyalty as friendship, I think, you know, because um, like when I was doing the house, some house fraud stuff, um, there were there are people tell me, "Yeah, uh, yeah, go to this, go to this escrow lawyer, and he will launder your money for you, whatever it is. And you pay him this amount of money, and you can trust him. You go to this person if you need this. You go to that's a lot of loyalty because you're being trusted with serious crimes. Um, that can be confused for friendship, and I think that's probably where you might have problems with undercovers who are conflating the, the trust with a criminal and the loyalty of a criminal." Because so these criminals, they will um, they will break somebody's bone for you, if you ask them. If I had gone to any of these, these guys I'm kind of doing business with and said this jerk, he uh, he took me for 10K, I'd have five people saying, let's go break his legs. I'll go break his legs. I'll, pay some, I'll call somebody right now because his leg broken tomorrow. That's loyalty, but it's not friendship. So as long as undercovers know, there, there's a, there's, there's, you can be loyal, you can be a loyal criminal. But it's not friendship. So I've never had a friendship. Just uh, I just knew what loyalty was, um, and for what it was, for that role. But not no. Yeah, that's a really
2: interesting distinction. Yeah. I I had never thought about separating those two out.
1: No. Yeah, that's a totally different perspective than I think a lot of people expect.
2: That's
1: it works for answer. people too.
0: Yeah, it, it's outside of crime too. There's with friendships that. Maybe up but not really friendships. So there's it works kind of the same way in in personal life, outside of the criminal life too. I would imagine. Yeah,
2: okay. Um, I have one more. It's a kind of a short compilation of a series of different undercover scenarios um, that I think you'll probably be able to apply directly to your life. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> so Brooklyn Nine Nine is obviously a comedy cop show, so. Yeah.
1: All right, I'll trust you, but if you're going to blend in, you got to blend in.
0: If you like ginger coladas, getting caught in the
2: rain, you two are looking good. Really? I kind of feel like I'm Jimmy Buffett's tennis coach.
0: No, it's working. You know I had a major crush on Magnum
1: P.I.
2: Major. Oh, should I grow a mustache?
1: Yeah, you should.
2: We're gonna need disguises, and since we're going to a public library, the best way to fit in is as... Scholars. Weird perverts. Yes, weird perverts. is far better. Far better. I love the mustache. What is the bandwidth on the Wi-Fi here? We have much content to stream. Here's my cover. <laughs> my name is Sherwin Lamond, sculptor, painter, full-time barista. But
0: once I sell my first piece, part-time barista. Oh, nice. I'm Donald Hoberman Sights. I wear glasses. Is that all you got? Sorry. Is it best practice
2: to I come up with your you're cover Matt, for status um, while I you're actually, talking. you know, in location? Why? Yes, thank you so much. Probably not. <laughs> wow, I Probably I I'm an artist, so I get that it's more than just tight.
1: Nick likes to coat women in latex. He's fascinated by the idea of the human chrysalis and society's pupation.
2: Mm, Cool, human chrysalis and whatnot. Mm, You know, you know whatnot. So whatnot. You know, you know. I have no idea what a chrysalis is, but serious question: if she farts in that thing, does it blow up like a balloon? You have to assume
0: that it would. You have to, right? What are you looking at, McAllister? Terry, 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 I need you to help me see what I'm not seeing. Why can't you do this? You're giving me too many notes! Okay, well then I can boil it down for you into one note. Tyrone is an ocean. I don't know what that means. It means I want you to be tough but vulnerable, brave but scared, jittery but perfectly still. Also, pace it up a little. Come on, buddy, you got this. Man, these stupid cops won't leave me alone. What the hell? They think I'm a snitch. Not me. McAllister, i need to talk to no you. excuse me i don't want any more notes i've gone undercover before now just back off and let me do this uh-oh alfonso <laughs> seems as though we got a pig in our midst looks like we can only trust each other come on man you obviously a cop too you keep talking about how nefarious you are so nikki i always <laughs> want to get <laughs> okay <laughs> that's all i got oh, for that one yeah
1: that, that show is amazing <laughs>
0: Yeah, but the, uh, the undercover role is um, Hollywood kind of makes it different, I guess, uh, than real life. Yeah. <laughs> Come in, you know, the legend and the personas, that sort of thing, so I think it's, um, I've, I've had one one situation where I, there was a, uh, a buyer, a non-American English speaker buyer, who wanted to buy drugs from another non-American, non-English speaker buyer. So all these foreign languages. So I'm trying to find an undercover who speaks that other language and I find one and it, he speaks as a second language. And I told him, I go, this guy only wants to buy from that, that, that person. That language doesn't trust Americans. Right? So while they're doing the undercover meet, I'm listening to the body wire. My undercover starts speaking English about midway through the conversation and to perfect native English. And it, it, it didn't work. And I, I learned quickly of, uh if if you're pretending to be somebody that you're not, you're gonna have a hard time eventually. This guy lasted about 15 minutes. Maybe somebody could last you know, a week of phone calls, but when you're looking into a month or years, um, it's hard to come up with a new persona that you're gonna live with unless you become that persona, which is gonna affect your personal life. So for me, generally, it was, uh, I am who I am. Uh, you know, with if latex, it's a thing, I don't know about latex. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can tell you what I know, but I don't, I don't know that. So don't fake that. <laughs> so, so yeah, oh comedy is comedy.
1: So you didn't ever pretend to be Trent, the bar, uh, barista.
0: <laughs> I, I, no, I pretended to be a lot of things, um, child traffickers, that sort of stuff, but I would learn what it was, you know, but it wouldn't be, um,
2: how to be yourself to in that role or yeah. that status. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was a drug
0: dealer many times, but that didn't mean that I was a drug addict. I was a drug user. It was um, I trafficked in kids at one point, um, but that didn't mean I was a child trafficker. You know, it, it just meant I was playing that role of uh, hey, I I don't do kids, but I sell kids. That was my role. So. Oh
1: man, that's so so standard. hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We learned a lot. Um, It was actually a lot of fun to listen to a lot of the stories that you had and your experiences. So we'll be sure to share all the resources that you provided throughout the podcast um, in the notes. Um,
0: And, Jared, did you have anything?
2: Yeah. um, Where can people go to find the book when it comes out?
0: Uh, BrettShavers.com. I'll put it on there, but it'll be on Twitter, my Twitter and everything. So, um,
2: okay. And you have a I blog guess, uh, at brett shavers.com as well
0: yep easy to remember it's just my name.com. okay and, uh, right. so it'll be out <laughs> there, there any, and I'll, <laughs> there.
2: are there any other uh, social media or other places that you're active that you'd like to highlight where people can well, nice I, connect with you
0: Sure, so i do the dfir.training website which is you know free resources for links to software and training and that sort of thing so through there is a, another way at my twitter brett underscore dot shavers it's an underscore because somebody took brett shavers so i had to put oh, an underscore man. in my Rude. so uh, he was first but there's another one so but that's about that's probably primarily
1: he's not as cool we can tell
0: well he plays baseball so he's oh
1: got wow that. he does have that <laughs> yes
0: <Yeah, so. laughs>
2: well i know somebody that can uh you know probably fix that problem for you <laughs>
0: We should talk after the podcast. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. But seriously, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, please give it a like and a thumbs up and share it. Uh, Brett, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been great.
0: My pleasure. Thanks. I mean, we're doing like a 200-kilo cocaine negotiations for a month, you know, for for one deal. Uh, airplanes delivering 1,000 pounds of BC Bud and that sort of stuff. Some guns. Uh, invariably, there's some uh, human trafficking aspects that would pop up in the cases. So I had a, those would show up.